Good afternoon, and welcome to episode two of International Affairs. Uh, this week, we will be talking about China, and this time, I'm going to be asking more of the questions, and uh, Jeremy will be will be explaining, walking us through, basically a primer of what Chinese objectives are related to the United States, and vice versa, and how the political, military, intelligence establishments fit within that, that framework. Uh, so to begin... Um, I'll do my best anyway. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so to begin, uh, could you sum up for us basically just um, what exactly are China's foreign policy objectives vis-a-vis -vis the United States? Yeah, so China operates, they want a great economic relationship with the United States because of their, our desire for the goods and services that they offer and provide. Mm -hmm. Cheap uh, stuff. <laughs> cheap stuff. That's important. Uh, you know, it is important for us here at home because we all, we like the cheap stuff and they're able to produce the items and things that we need at less of a cost. Therefore, they can sell them and um, that, that gain that economic prowess. We've kind of allowed them do, to do that over the past you know, 30, 35, 40 years, giving them this special status as a great economic partner and kind of building China up to where they are today economically uh, with their economic prowess. That's uh, what China wants that with the United States. China... One of their main objectives globally, right? They say they want peace, they want stability, they want harmony, they want everything to work smoothly. However, they are still a country that must ensure their security somehow in some way uh, because they are a near peer to the United States. And that creates a security challenge for us. Uh, and so there's going to be a constant back and forth between uh, the uh, constant power plays between China and the West. Um, and so th that's really what China wants. It's how they operate their foreign policy. It's what they, they say outwardly and overtly. It's just harmony, peace uh, with their neighbors and the surrounding area and the other great power players. And the caveat to that, obviously, would be power and, and peace and security on, on their terms, right? <laughs> That's right, on yeah. their terms. Uh, and so, you know, we look at how China affects their foreign policy uh, with much more of a dictatorial, authoritarian style. Uh, when we talked last week about Russia and how they affect their foreign policy uh, compared to the United States and the idea that we see each country has their own ability and they have the free will to operate their country how they choose, how they want, within certain parameters of you know, basic international law and human, human rights. China is much more aggressive and pragmatic in some of these approaches uh, and don't necessarily... They're willing to do what they have to do and... You know, maybe push a little bit of morality, or at least that Western morality, aside uh, to meet their policy objectives. Right, and so so harmony for them is kind of a is a 
is a sort of directed by by us, our version of harmony, correct, not correct. not your version of harmony, right? So there's you kind of have to uh, whenever you you look at their their wording, you kind of have to take some of it with a grain of salt, absolutely. right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So that's uh, you know when when we look at at these these particular objectives, right? How does uh, China pursue them, and and why these particular objectives as well? Yeah, so China, you know, this goes back to China's pursuing a lot of what they do through economic strength um, and their ability to fund projects uh, around the globe. And, you know, this brings up one of their, their longstanding uh, policy objectives of the, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Uh, and this is the idea that China is going to go out around the world to these countries in need, they're going to offer them significant funding for infrastructure projects, significant funding towards education, setting up Chinese cultural educational centers in these countries, help them develop ports, deep water ports, help them uh, with the logistics. Uh, and so China's directly loaning a lot of money to these countries under this Belt and Road Initiative, uh, kind of setting them up for this idea of debt diplomacy where hey, we're going to give you a lot of money. We're going to do a lot of great things for you. We're going to build skyscrapers. And we're going to call the skyscraper China and put a big sign on the skyscraper that says, hey, this is China Tower here in Nairobi. Hey, we're going to build a railroad in Nairobi. And we're going to call it the China Railway. You know, um, And so they do that and they start to you kind of use this soft diplomacy and this economic diplomacy to infiltrate uh, and then hold hostage based on these debt payment, debt service that uh, these countries are more likely to default on than, uh, you know, the other, the other BRICS countries that, are, mm. that have a greater economic status. So you see kind of a, a, a way of using that leverage, right, with them. So it is that, a leverage tool. Right. So that you can strong arm a country and saying, okay, you tow the line that we want you to tow. And if you don't, Right, you owe us this much money, and, and right. we're going to make sure that you pay it. Right, right? Or, or if you don't, or else. Mm-hmm. right? If you don't, we've seen in a lot of these agreements that China has worked in. Uh, you know, we're going to fund this revamp of your deep sea, deep water port on your coast. And guess what? If you don't pay us, or you default, or you do something to slight us, we are going to take control over that port. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in in several uh, several examples in in recent years. I believe Sri Lanka right. uh, has has is one of those where where they the Chinese reinvested in in some deep water seaport uh-huh. uh, and and that defaulted. Now China owns this piece of Sri right. Lanka. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same with mines for precious metals. Uh, and so that's quite a significant and aggressive use of. Uh, of their economic prowess and debt diplomacy, really taking advantage of these countries that, um, you know, sometimes they welcome it. uh, And there's a lot of corruption at play, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of these local politicians in these other uh, developing countries are receiving millions and millions of dollars, and they don't care one way or another if China's Mm -hmm. coming in or not, because their bank account's getting full. Mm -hmm. And they like... and many of these countries have certain affinities with the Chinese system as well, because a lot of them are are dictatorial regimes themselves, right. or or you have that that system of corruption 
and you also have that mutual hatred of the West. Right. Yeah. And in, in many of those, uh, in many of those locations. Yeah. The, the, there is a lot of that. Um, however, over, you know, I've spent a significant amount of time over in East Africa and, you know, specifically Kenya has taken a lot of money from China for infrastructure projects. Uh, and so when I bring up, you know, the rail, the railroad, uh, in Kenya going through Nairobi, right? You sit on that train and all of the conductors are Chinese nationals, right? They have in each train car, they have a China flag and a Kenya flag, right? Just this soft diplomacy, this subtle, these subtle visual cues that, uh, you know, work into the minds of the people. Hey, we have these nicer things because China's here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you see skyscrapers going up that are literally called China, China, China Square this, China Town this, uh, that are being funded by China and uh, Chinese... It's a way to influence the population. State-controlled, yeah, organizations. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's that subtle undertone of, of influence through prosperity that China's bringing, or it appears they're bringing to these developing countries. Uh, and part of the problem is, at least in, in large parts of Africa, right, the U.S., we've failed on engaging those countries as much as we should have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we back out, we choose not to play or we choose not to engage. And we left the door open for China. We left the door open for China to move in. Right. And, and export their model to those countries as they, as they show other countries, Hey, look what we can do for you. And, and look what your country could be if you followed this, right. Never mind that, it's not really any better, but right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, I would, you know, in the East Africa example, uh, the, the East African people do not like the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Um, they do not like the uh, Chinese conductors, doctors, etc., being exported from China to come run Kenyan infrastructure. Right. They don't like, looks a lot like old colonialism. It does exactly, uh, and there's a lot of abuse that goes on. Right, the the local Kenyan population is seen as subservient to these Chinese experts and engineers that brought the new highway, that brought the railroad. Hey, we're bringing you all of these things. You work for me, and you do what I tell you to do. Uh, and so there, there is that social rift that exists between. China exporting their their model and their way, uh, and it not jiving with, uh, you know, the the local Kenyans on the street. It, they don't like it. They don't like it. But when they push back against it, right? There's a lot of corruption, money, and and things that need to get better. At least from the United States standpoint, we need to do a better job engaging instead of taking a back seat in, in a lot of these developing countries. Mm -hmm. So that's Belt and Road. Um, and we can kind of move into the Thousand Talents program, uh, which is uh, another significant tool of, of foreign policy. Uh, it is an operational tool of China using or developing a program, right, where they're recruiting experts and researchers that focus on critical issues from agriculture to defense, aerospace, across the board, recruiting university professors, scientists, right, uh, biologists, and trying to bring that talent 
into the China fold, trying to bring that talent and that expertise into the Chinese system, which, you know, is essentially trying to steal our research and our thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Our innovative capability, trying to steal that. Um, And we've seen a lot of cases in that Thousand Talents program. uh, You know, I mean, this this is espionage. This is, hey, let me, I want what you have. Let me pay you money to fly to China. Let me tell you why China's great. Let me have you sign this contract. You work for me. And, and now by the, you also say that China's great. Right. And by <laughs> the way, don't go home and tell people that you are doing these things. Uh, and so that's, you know, the Belt and Road and Thousand Talents, those are two significant tools of foreign policy that China's used over the, uh, you know, decade and a half, two decades uh, to try to push their influence uh, around the world. And I would say that it's worked. We'll get Mm -hmm. into that, but uh, we've got significant issues related to intelligence uh, here and specifically the counterintelligence realm uh, and asking the questions, why, why has it worked? Why has this been successful? And why have we not done anything or why, I want to be careful because I really appreciate the special agents, intelligence officers that are working the intelligence mission. Uh, and this is not a bash on them, but well, you know, why have we been caught flat-footed on some of these issues for so long? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and does that, uh, going on that Thousand Talents program, does that relate to a lot of the scandals that we've seen in the last few years related to uh, university research departments having lots of money invested in Chinese projects Absolutely. And, and other, other related, uh, related investments. Absolutely. This is where it starts. This is where it starts. Um, you have China willing to pay significant amounts of money uh, for you to give what you have to China so they can further their own internal research and development. They kind of have a multi-pronged approach. The Thousand Talents program is one aspect of that. Uh, but the way they operate is steal, steal, steal. Intellectual mm-hmm. property, national defense information, across the board, whatever they can get. They really are experts at this multi-mode intelligence collection because they have the technological capabilities. They've got the human intelligence network and capabilities. Uh, and they're willing to pay money that, unfortunately, people accept. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads us, you mentioned the human, uh, human side of this as well. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of times we see in, in Chinese um, student visas and, and whatnot, you have, uh, you have a student who comes here who wants to you know, learn and grow and, and become whatever they, they seek to be out of whatever field of study. They want to learn new knowledge, start their business, and succeed in life, right? And, and we have a, a system where the Chinese government uh, is, is frequently able to, uh, through its coercive means, uh, force people who may not otherwise have wanted to spy for China into uh, into doing this as well. So this is another layer of of that problem is 
is the Chinese system is not a, a free system, right? It's a coercive system. That, that's absolutely right. It's extremely coercive. And, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about, uh, about this before we started the show today. Uh, you know, I've rubbed elbows with a lot of excellent, uh, brilliant uh, Chinese nationals that are here studying. Um, I love their culture. They love their culture. There's uh, a lot of things about their way of life that I can appreciate. Um, and so, caveat again, this is not bashing, uh, you know. Hardly. <laughs> yeah, this is, not, this is not bashing the Chinese people. But we have allowed... It's and, their government that's the problem. Uh, the, the government <laughs> yeah. is the problem. Um, we've allowed hundreds of thousands of Chinese students to come to American universities. The American universities, the, those Chinese student visas are in such a high, the, the quantity is so high, that equals dollars for universities. That equals tuition. So we have a bunch of Chinese nationals coming to study. Large part of them want, they're just like us, you know, this younger generation, they want, like you're saying, to be able to build a business that they own outright. They want to be able to build wealth for their family. They want to be able to grow, move freely. They want to be able to think freely. They want to be able to worship whoever they choose freely. They're not able to do that there, and so they come here, which is flattering. They want to come study at American universities, and I want to teach them. I want them to mm -hmm. learn. Yeah, and, and provide them a way to to change things back home if they can. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, a large part of a large portion of them uh, have those honest intentions and come here and study and go home. There are a percentage of those that are directly controlled by Chinese intelligence, the MSS, that come here specifically to rub elbows with American students, find out who's sympathetic to what cause, find out who's researching what find out where people work, who has access and placement, right? This is an access and placement play. How are we going to figure out who's going where, who can give us what, how can we cultivate this long-term intelligence relationship starting from, you know, some would say relatively naive American university students that don't understand the world. They don't understand their, their friend that's inviting them over for a Chinese dinner at their apartment down the road here in Texas you know, is, has ulterior motives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as of recent, we've done a better job. COVID played a part in, in seeing a reduction in Chinese student visas to the United States. And then we've also upped our game a little bit. Uh, we've upped our game in terms of being more selective and trying to investigate a little more who these students are and keeping a better eye on what's happening. Uh, you know, and this leads us, the, the American university system is really ripe for intelligence operations uh, to, to, to cultivate, be cultivated on uh, American universities because of the significant research and development. Um, but then you bring in these Chinese cultural institutions, right? Then we get into this Confucius Institute that, was allowed to establish shop and set up and operate for a long time uh, across the United States 
with their goal of, hey, we're going to teach Chinese and spread goodwill and we're going to live in harmony and we're going to... As an influence operation. Influence right? operation, right? But also, you know, a great cover for intelligence officers to come be on campus at American universities. And so you've got uh, a little more advanced, more senior intelligence officers mixing and mingling um, as part of the Confucius Institute. And then you've got, you know, the, the students that are sitting in your class next to you taking courses and uh, going out and doing extracurricular activities with you and building friendships, relationships that they hope last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of that whole thousand talent program, that, that idea, their, their foreign policy objective with that is really, I dropped my pen, sorry, it's really tied into intelligence. It's an intelligence operation. They are looking to steal They are looking to cheat. They are looking to gain the competitive advantage. They are looking to do anything and everything they can by any means necessary to advance China. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do these objectives, right, fall in line with some of the more common political military objectives? We'll get into the spy balloon event here, uh, here in a minute. Uh, spy balloon. I like right, spy balloon. Right. But even looking towards Taiwan, right? How does how does Taiwan fit in all of this as well? Yes, yeah, so Taiwan is really um you know, first China believes that there is one China. There is one China. Taiwan has has been able to exist according to the Chinese because they've allowed it to exist in its current state as it as it is. Over time, China has kind of become a uh, a harbor of more Western ideals, uh, more open to democracy, more open to some of the 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 ways of the West, uh, and that continually and as of not necessarily as of late, but just continually pressured. China, uh, mainland China, into we need to do something about Taiwan mm-hmm. uh, so, in order to combat those those Western ideas, Western systems of government, and right. They don't want that Western creeping influence. in. They don't want that creeping into the population in Taiwan or that close in their geographical sphere. They don't want that. And so there's there's been a push, um, and it's a. Uh, a sad situation um, that exists between uh, China and Taiwan. And then, of course, you've got the United States the, the wholly supports Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that brings up a bunch of other potential problems, right, and issues with deterrence and our, our signaling and what we have done, what we're willing to do, what we're capable of now. Um, But China wants Taiwan to be completely controlled and under the pure influence of mainland China and the Chinese Communist Party. So, so walk us through, uh, we mentioned the spy balloon, right? We'll, we'll finally get into that timely topic, right? Walk us through the timeline of, of that event. You know, what actually happened? Yeah. So, 
the Chinese spy balloon is, is something that's kind of fascinating, right? You've got two different arguments about the, the, about the balloon's intent, what the balloon was actually doing. Uh, you've got the Chinese eventually admitting it did come from China, and it's a weather balloon that was released by some civilian researchers, and it got blown off course. And it just so happened to fly across the entire United States. And several of our military installations. And several military installations <laughs> uh, by accident were sorry. Um, so that, that's the Chinese story, right? Uh, that's the, the Chinese story. Uh, as this balloon approached, I don't have really finite uh, or fine detail of intelligence on what happened with the balloon crossing the Pacific, the North Pacific into Alaska. Uh, but the balloon is approaching the United States, right? And so it's in NORAD territory coming in from Canada, about to cross into Montana. And we vigorously protect our airspace here in the United States. Um, and there's a buffer zone called the ADIZ, A-D-I-Z, Air Defense Identification Zone. Anything foreign coming into United States airspace has to establish some type of communication or contact within this buffer zone, you know, to either be approved or denied entry into the United States. Uh, this balloon apparently was not detected by the majority of radar systems at the time. DOD, in their effort to uh, try to optimize their radar detection, right? They set filters on their radar. So, hey, we don't want to see flocks of birds flying around on the radar. We don't want to see other weather balloons flying around on the radar or other anomalies that are going to distract us from tracking real threats. Too much to sift through. Too much to sift through. And so this balloon apparently is just able to enter in to the United States unchecked over Montana. At some point in time, we do detect the balloon and, you know, scramble uh, some aircraft to go check out the balloon. And it just slowly works its way, apparently, at 65,000 feet, right? So we're getting a little, uh, I think it's the stratosphere, a little stratospheric operation with this balloon. Um, and we send up a U-2 or multiple U-2s to take some optical imagery of this balloon and try to decide what it is and what it's doing. Um, and so the balloon is allowed to start traveling across sensitive military sites, right? And people often ask now, since this has happened, well, doesn't China have satellites? Don't they have significant SIGINT capabilities on these satellites? Why would they send a balloon? It doesn't make sense. Maybe the China story's right. Maybe the U.S. story's wrong. And then we start to get this battle of ideas about information that works into our own domestic politics and, you know, kind of creates a... Right, uh, uh, not political left and political right narrative, but it's a... A split. A split. And so, anyway, the balloon could have been shot down. Uh, and there's 
a group of people that believe the balloon should have been shot down the second we knew it was going to enter U.S. airspace. On the intelligence side, there's value in not shooting the balloon down right away uh, because we want to be able to check out what this balloon is doing. Right. What's its purpose? What's its purpose? And so launching a U-2 with some great signal capabilities in optical imaging, we're able to take detailed photos of the balloon as it's existing in the air. We're able to monitor all the communications from the balloon and or to the balloon. We're able to do other things uh, with signals intelligence capability regarding this Chinese balloon and then send that back to CIA and figure out or NSA and figure out, all right, what kind of command and control was being sent to the balloon, if any, you know, and it gives us the advantage their balloon operation program in China, right? If they launched 10 other balloons or planned on launching 10 other balloons and didn't think we would catch this, right? Then, you know, we're ahead of the game knowing what, what, the balloon project and program is really attempting to do. Um, so we, we let the balloon fly. We let the balloon fly over the United States and eventually out the coast of North Carolina, where we finally shoot it down over the Atlantic Ocean right after it leaves North Carolina. The balloon did pass over some significant military installations, uh, which is cause for concern. Uh, you know, usually we have countermeasures at these installations whenever we know satellites are passing over adversarial satellites at certain times, take certain countermeasures, you know, this balloon was unexpected. So did this, was this balloon able to capture some type of intelligence that would have traditionally been obfuscated in some way via our countermeasures that we traditionally employ? And I don't have the answer to that. But we do know it wasn't just a weather balloon, or I don't believe it was just a weather balloon. Right. It, it, doesn't go over several military installations by accident, right? <laughs> it, it, it does not. Um, and so I'm happy we shot it down. I'm happy we collected it. I'm happy we're analyzing it. And I hope more comes out about the Chinese balloon so that we, we kind of get insight into what China's, what that provocation or uh, penetration mission was attempting to accomplish. Um, well, that's the Chinese spy balloon. If we go into other China, you know, it's kind of fascinating. I've got a list here that I was kind of writing down. Just, you know, we've got the spy balloon, right? We've got Eric Swalwell, and a, uh, a Senate member sitting on the Intelligence Committee that's dating a Chinese spy, right? We've got Diane Feinstein's driver at one point in time was cozy with Chinese uh, had ties to Chinese intelligence. We've got, at a point in time, we lost a significant intelligence, human intelligence network in China, right? We had a Chinese, we had a CIA officer that had moved to Hong Kong, retired, left the agency, moved to Hong Kong, and was found to be sharing information with the Chinese MSS. And because of that, right, we suffered a loss of 20 to 30 Chinese, great, loving Chinese people only looking to better China, the country, the world by helping the United States die. They were murdered. Um, and that's old Jerry Lee. 
We've got, you know, China's incredible cyber capability or just persistent, aggressive cyber attacks on all forms of infrastructure that is extremely problematic. We've got Chinese companies counterfeiting certified networking equipment, telecommunications backbone equipment that they're smuggling into the United States and pawning it off as legitimate certified equipment. And it's been all altered. It's been modified, right? What is their intent for doing that, right? They're collecting information. We've got the student visas and Chinese students cheating to get through. Um, we've got the Chinese police stations, which, you know, Confucius Institutes are starting to go away because of pushback. We've got these Chinese kind of cultural outposts in the United States and around the world that are Chinese intelligence operations where they're tracking Chinese dissidents that are, that are speaking negatively about the Chinese regime and finding out, pressuring their families back home. And they're, they're, why are they allowed to operate here in the United States? I don't know why they're allowed to operate in the United States. I wouldn't let them. We've got spy cranes, right, in the news. Oh, you know, hey, we buy all this equipment for these ports where we offload all of these goods from ships. And oh, by the way, the, you know, we get this stuff from China. And China could just hit the kill switch and shut down all of our operations at port. Why? Why, why are we allowing that to happen? Something that is important that I want to bring up is CFIUS. It's this Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's something that needs to gain more traction, something that is gaining more traction that's critical to our national security here at home and specifically speaks to Chinese TikTok and land purchases in the United States from the Chinese-owned Chinese organizations and businesses. Ultimately uh, tying back to the CCP. Right? So it ties back to the CCP, right? And so I'm sorry, I'm just going on in this list of all of these Chinese provocations and penetrations and attempts to steal, influence, undermine. Uh, but CFIUS, it's a committee that looks at foreign investment through the lens of national security, right? Are we going to allow... China to come by 1,000 acres near uh, a nuclear military base. No, we shouldn't. But the review of that, China, that foreign investment is in regards to national security, you know, five, eight, ten years ago, it's been lacking. So it's nice to see that this committee's building steam and momentum and able to actually affect law and policy because I don't think you could, uh, I don't think any American in the United States would say, yes, China should be able to buy that farm. Yes, China should be able to buy 5,000 acres near Washington, D.C. There's no reason for it. It would be absurd. It, it is absurd, mm -hmm. but it happens. TikTok. TikTok is another thing that's been in the news lately. Right? Uh, you know, a big scare. I don't know if I'd even call it a scare. A legitimate concern that that's uh, a tool of the Chinese Communist Party and it's collecting just all this open source intelligence on populations at large, mm -hmm. right? Your movements, your 
you know, f- photos and videos of yourself, facial recognition. Mm-hmm. It's all feeding yeah. into their working on the facial recognition technology while at motion. Right. 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 And that all is working into their algorithms for AI and building artificial intelligence. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I've and even as a platform for influence operations, because they control what the algorithm sends who out sees to what exactly. Really? And so, so you can you can send things that that might be destabilizing to society or or radical views out to out to people and and promote this as you know as the path forward or or what have you in order to you know again play at that right. angle of right yeah. Of, policy objectives. Yeah, and it's critical that people understand, even if we haven't seen specific case examples of that through TikTok specifically now at this point in time, right, that that capability exists. Mm-hmm. And so if at some point in time in the future, China wanted to utilize that application to do something more destabilizing, they, had the, they have the ability to do it. Uh, and so it's it's trying to take a couple steps ahead and be aware uh, and really uh, understand that China poses a significant threat to American security via all these avenues. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much. There's so much that's going on. Uh, and so CFIUS is, a, is, is something that's important. Every American should understand that we need to look at foreign investment through the lens of national security. Mm-hmm. So walk us through exactly what CFIUS does. Um, we've mentioned foreign investment and, and kind of analyzing, looking at that from a national security lens. What exactly is CFIUS supposed to do? It, so that's what they're, they're set up for. They are going to analyze foreign transactions based on foreign investment. They're going to look at who the key uh, the the stakeholders are in each organization they're going to decide if those people are being controlled or beholden to somebody else making decisions they're going to look at the intent they're going to really try just to analyze is there some national security implication or some threat to the United States if we allow this investment to move forward, if we allow this tech company to start up in Silicon Valley and they are owned by, you know, the, you know, hey, my uncle owns the company and he's in Cuba, mm-hmm. but we're going to start this, this Cuban social media channel here in Silicon Valley and it's going to be an app we're put on everybody's phones and they're not going to understand the permissions and it's going to give all of the data on XYZ. Um, oil and gas, uh, energy policy. CFIUS looks at, you know, how much control are we going to give over our domestic or our energy globally, right? That the U.S. has access to, how much of that do we allow a potential adversary to control? So it, does this serve as, as kind of an advisory board? Does it have decision-making power? Uh, how does it help us to prevent, you know... Yeah. 
yeah, so malign uh, investment. So it, it, advisory, and they work on all. They were. We need foreign investment in the United States, and so they work diligently on reviewing these cases that that are brought before them because we want to try to mitigate the national security risk. And if we can find some way to mitigate the national security risk, we want the deal to be able to go through because it could be beneficial to Americans and create American jobs. It could be beneficial to our energy sector. It could be beneficial to agriculture. And so the committee, an advisory board that uh, communicates with the president uh, and the White House National Security Council on really a, we should or we shouldn't. Um, and I believe the president has the ability to override or uh, choose specifically what what he or she would like, uh, what deals he or she would like to go through. Um, but CFIUS is important. Right. So it, it helps us to be able to mitigate malign investment opportunities while promoting those that are beneficial right for for the united states for our economy for uh for our citizens while helping to try to navigate and and work through making sure that we don't fall prey to exact threats exactly so how does the spy balloon and these various um tools of chinese influence right how does this fit within foreign policy objectives for China, maybe both their stated objectives right. as, as they put them, and then what you would read them to, to be in, in reality. Right. Yeah. So I think China understands that their, their social fabric is fragile to some extent. There's a lot of pushback. We saw a lot of that during lockdowns, COVID, um, China needs to maintain a really tight grip and control over the way their people think and operate. China also needs to maintain their economic status in the global order to continue their growth to being the hegemon in the East. Um, China is recently finding that they're having success kind of expanding their foreign policy outreach and standing on the world stage, smiling, hey, look at us, we made a broker to deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran. Hey, look at us, we did X, Y, Z. We're moving, we're active, we're gaining influence, we're pushing ahead. And trying to position ourselves as a great power a, that can be a mediator and, and a tool for influence in, in the world, right? Right. You know, the, the West has played a traditionally that has been, hey, it, the United States is going to go broker this deal. Hey, the United States is going to be a part of this agreement. Hey, the United States is going to get this done. Hey, the U.S. is going to solve this problem. And we've got Xi Jinping out now. Taking China that. in in that in that role. He right? is. And, and the question would be for, for U.S. policy, you know, do we accept that? And do we want China to be that mediator? Do we want them to be the world's policeman? Right. Right. My vote is no. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
my vote is no. Uh, and so we don't want that. How do we counter that? Mm-hmm. Right. And this, this, it's really more concerning today than it was yesterday as things evolve with Russia, Ukraine, China, tensions with Taiwan, our. And let us not forget that China is on the side of Russia. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's concerning. And so now, more than ever, this issue, or China, is critically important, have such a near peer in terms of military might, economic strength that, you know, and it kind of rubs me that we've allowed that to happen, right? We've allowed over the course of 30, 35 years, China to become what China is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a threat. It's a threat to us, and they know it's a threat to us, and they know we're going to, to attempt to gain strength, gain influence, and counter the moves that they're making, and that scares them. So it's going to be this ebb and flow, this push and take. It's, it's going to be uh, these influence grabs, these power plays between China and the West. Right. And, and you see that playing out throughout the world and, and even in our own near abroad here in the United States, right? China has a lot of, a lot of influence in many Latin American countries, especially those with socialist and left-leaning regimes. Right. Um, the new elections in, uh, in Colombia, Brazil, right, where, where you have these, these new governments coming in that are cozy with China and even cozy with Russia as well. So, so these are, are, you know, playing close to home as well. They are, and, mm-hmm. and they will continue to get closer uh, as China pushes greater influence and peddles their economic uh, you know, prosperity packages to all Debt of these diplomacy, devel- right? to all of these developing countries that are near the United States, and so it's a significant threat. It's something the United States must counter. It's important that every American citizen understands China's strength, their intent, their desire to undermine the United States, China's desire to see the United States weakened. China has a significant military capability, a significant intelligence apparatus, constant, aggressive, persistent provocations and attempted penetrations as we went through. You know, how does Chinese intelligence, you know, they end up having a woman date somebody on our intelligence committee, right? <laughs> it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you manage to have all of these strategically placed people in, in, in high high level capacity, right? right? And it's it's strength in numbers. This, mm-hmm. So the Chinese intelligence game is strength in numbers, right? All of those Chinese students that come here, the Chinese diaspora at large, that have any familial ties back to mainland China, are under or are potentially under the control of the Chinese Communist Party and the MSS, and, and are, tremendous pressure on them as well, whether they want to be or not, they're right. going to be right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe at this time we should say, you know, if that's you and you're listening to this show, you know, call your local FBI officer or walk in and, and they'll take care of you, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Um, so that leads us into the United States side of things, right? We've looked at, at, at Chinese objectives and why, uh, why China tries to do what it does. 
Right. So what are the U.S.'s foreign policy objectives vis-a-vis China? This is also, uh, it's a complex relationship. It's a sticky situation because it goes down back to the economics where we started this discussion. China's able to give us things that we can't do or get here or manufacture here at home any longer. We have outsourced so much to China and have built up China's technical skill level, have built up their engineering and manufacturing capability because of outsourcing all of this American innovation and all of these great engineered technical products and things like plastic cups and, you know, uh, dog toys uh, and dog toys and, you know, um, little plastic wheelbarrows for your three-year-old to push around anything and everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I had COVID not too long ago and opened my COVID test and it's got a stupid certificate from China that, Hey, this is approved and authorized by China. Here's your COVID test. And it irritates me. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we've allowed that to happen. We outsourced a bunch of, uh, a bunch of industry to China because of cheap labor, because of China's, uh, ability to manufacture and produce in bulk provide that back to the United States and help China grow in their economic prowess and us at the same time purchasing all of those goods and services from China. Um, So at home, we want that. We like that. We want less, you know, we want the cheap stuff. Right. I, you know, I couldn't imagine, um, you know, some, some things that are produced over in China or Mexico or any, any other uh, country where labor is less expensive and we're able to import those items uh, and the end consumer pays less, right? If, you know, you flip a switch and one year from now, everybody's paying double for everything, right? We don't have American workers that want to work for the wages that these companies are, are paying and these, in, you know, overseas to manufacture these things. So we don't have factory workers that are going to work for $3 an hour building air conditioning systems. They're just not. Right. And if mm-hmm. we, excuse me, if we start or, you know, provide some economic incentive and reinvestment into American manufacturing, those laborers to live, you know, are going to need $20, $30, $40, $50 an hour. Mm-hmm. As opposed then, to the three. Right. And then your price shoots up as well as a right. result of that. And nobody mm-hmm. wants that. And so over the past 30, 40 years, as we've outsourced all of this industry, technical know-how, knowledge, we've given it all away. We've forgotten how to do things here at home. And then our standard of living, of course, did, I don't see us gaining back. No. What it, we've, once gone, it's gone. It's gone. So... How do we balance our foreign policy and security objectives with a superpower in the East that controls all of that mm-hmm. that we want? Yeah. How do we how do we balance the security and the economic side? Right. So so what exactly uh, does the U.S. seek to do here? Um, how do we balance that, or or do we have a coherent policy in that direction? As we stand today, I don't think we have a coherent policy in that direction. It's a very complex problem. 
We've heard a lot in domestic politics about bringing manufacturing back. We've heard about trade wars. We've heard about China, China, China from certain groups of people. I'm going to shut down what's happening in China. We're bringing everything back to the United States. You know, there are other countries we could try to work with and export some of these things to. Uh, I don't know. I think I think we're a little bit stuck. Mm-hmm. We took that poison pill with Richard Nixon, and now we we have the consequences of it here. Right, right. And so we need brilliant people, brilliant minds working in foreign policy and diplomacy and national security to help figure out these problems because uh, it doesn't look good. No, and it's it is a quagmire. So what? Do you think, is there a direction that, that seems like a, a promising path forward? Is there anything, uh, you know, what would be the best way to achieve a, you know, first, what would be a good objective? And then, and then how do we get there? Right. Yeah. So I think we're kind of at the juncture in time where we have to find some way somehow to develop Deterrence policy, number one. Number two, I don't know how else to say it, but put China in their place. Give them, a, give them something that's going to stop and make them think and second guess what they're doing. And try to shut down and counter all of their influence operations and all of these measures they're taking around the globe. Right, we should be the first ones there. We should have been the first ones there. And in some of these cases, we were the first ones there. But guess what? I think we've fallen out of favor a little bit over the past mm-hmm. several years. Certainly. Plus, and that's our fault. That's our fault. And so how do we recover from that? How do we build up and signal our, our, our capability economically, signal our capability militarily signal our capability uh, socially and regarding all of the things we hold near and dear human rights, liberty, law and order. Uh, it's a, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, How do we export that model? Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we talked about soft, soft diplomacy and hard diplomacy, right? You know, you can send soft diplomacy, you can send the McDonald's and a Burger King somewhere and, Maybe ship over some books from the local library that are American literature and hope that the people read it and like it, right? And then hard diplomacy, a little uh, more aggressive, demanding uh, diplomatic moves. Carrot and stick. Right. Uh, and then there's, you know, the murky world of the intelligence and influence operations. Covert, we get into covert action and just trying to affect... Uh, the outcomes of elections and trying to have excellent access, penetrations with excellent access. You know, this, all of these tools of statecraft have to fully be deployed. They need to be revitalized. They need to be revamped. Uh, and they need to be redeployed with might to counter what's happening now with China and with Russia, Iran, 
so on right. and so forth. Yeah, whether we like it or not, we're finding ourselves in another Cold War, and and this is right. We're there, right? Yeah. You know, we we need to find coherence, and you know, we've been kind of caught flat-footed in in recent years. So so trying to be able to you know, okay, what should our policy be? You know, scrambling to figure out how to recover what we've lost right. uh, over the years, right? So. What have we then? Uh, what have we then signaled going back to the spy balloon event uh, in in our response? Was that response appropriate and adequate for the question uh, for the situation? Right, and and what did we signal to China and other adversaries in that time? Yeah, so I think we signaled a couple of things. First, it's now become greatly aware that our radar systems had filters. We weren't able to see certain things. Our visibility was zero on particular objects and things. And so that's, that's become aware, um, which opens us up to greater vulnerabilities because now oh, the DOT says we've refine-tuned our systems and now we can see all of the clutter and we can see all of the crap, right? Which is going to be information overload. And so if there's... Right. So now how do we sift through that? Right. Mm-hmm. So now it's a sifting problem and it's how do we sift through accurately and detect the actual threats? Um, you know, personally, I would have liked, you know, of course, I wish we knew about the spy balloon when it was over the Pacific Ocean. I would have intercepted it. I would have taken imagery. I would have collected SIGINT data from that spy balloon as it's coming over. And then I would have shot that thing down. Right, in the ideal world, right? Right. Yeah, (laughs) that didn't happen, and because it didn't happen, it did enter into the United States. It was able to collect collect data, and it. So, whenever it crossed over, right? It's we shoot it down here in the United States. It's a big spectacle. Everybody's phones out. There's going to be recordings. What's going to happen to the debris? Is somebody on the ground going to attempt to steal something critical that's used that we're going to need to use for uh, analysis of this? Uh, and so I think the the slow play, right, from an intelligence perspective, really trying to watch and understand. You know, it's kind of like when you're, you know, operating on the street and you want to see what somebody's doing, right? It's let me kind of just lurk behind them and watch them observe. Let me watch them for a a few weeks, a few months, learn their pattern of life, maybe listen to their telephone calls. Let me X, Y, Z. All right. We did that with a spy balloon and there's a lot of benefit to doing it that way. It doesn't look good on on the world stage. Uh, It looks like we were weak. It looks like we don't, you know, how do we let a tool of Chinese espionage just float over the United States mm-hmm. for days? Right. So we had no good options, and, and this is the one we took right. is, is kind of the gist. Right. It's the one that we took. Um, I'm glad we did. You know, we could have let it fly off the East Coast and then just let it go, right, and mm-hmm. do nothing. But, you know, I it, it felt good to, you know, stick it to them at least at the very end. You know, hey, <laughs> after all of that, we at least get to blow you up and we did and it felt good right so kind of wrapping things up here right what exactly 
are we are we facing in the next uh, just kind of projecting this out into 5 10 20 years right what are we facing with a clearly rising chinese regime and and how does the united states you know, what does it look like for us going forward to either a counter them or b um go off into our own little world yeah. Um, so the next five years, China is going to continue to gain strength. We have to do something to prevent that. We should be doing something to prevent that from happening. Um, and we go into a whole realm of covert action and what can be done, right? How do we collapse our financial system? You know, how do we... And then what's the consequence of that? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, all of these things are risky and have unintended consequences that need to be thought about. But you know, I see China gaining strength over the next mm-hmm. five years. As China gains strength, right, this is that whole idea of zero sum, the United States is losing because we're not there where China is. China right. is making the deals. China is getting cozy with Russia, which is a huge significant threat to the United States and the West. And so you've got China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Cuba, mm-hmm. you know, this coalition that's it existed but it's becoming emboldened and strengthened right? Uh, with recent current events. And I, they, they see like, you know, hey, there was this opportunity. We took it. It's paying off. We're running with it. We're building steam and we're going. Mm-hmm. China, can, Russia, going. Right. And we can become the power players in the world and knock the United States off its, off right. its pedestal. Right. right. And I don't see any... I don't see any stopping if if China and Russia develop an absolute alliance, right? And then with their other satellite countries of influence, that is a significant threat that I don't see how the United States tries to get out of that one mm-hmm. um, uh, unless we take drastic measures. Right, and and we have to prepare for it now, right? Wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, we should have been prepared for it long before, mm-hmm. uh, but absolutely now. Since that ship has sailed, right? <laughs> Got to start where we can. That ship has sailed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, this brings up another personal rub of mine, and I've spoken about it briefly a second ago, but it's why has has this been allowed to happen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. who or, or why, you know, this this. Russia, China, this China, Taiwan, this China meddling in Africa, this China XYZ, whatever has to do with China, the Chinese students, the Chinese espionage, the Chinese cyber intrusions, Chinese counterfeit products. Why has this not been, why was the stop not put to this earlier, long ago and earlier? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... What were we doing? Twiddling our thumbs here. What were we doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of that is the end of the Cold War, right? And then the war on terror. And then we've got, you know, then we're a country that, you know, a lot of our intelligence is focused on, you know, these terror groups, terror activity, domestic terrorism, X, Y, Z. And it's like, did we lose sight of, you know, what I know we did it. I know we didn't. We have brilliant analysts that work on these things. In the intelligence community, we didn't, but somewhere 
where somebody wouldn't put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. Where did the breakdown happen between those people and our policymakers? Right. right. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you could say, was there a breakdown between our people and the policymakers, or is there some other greater power or influence or corruption that what else is intervening here? Why, why didn't we address this sooner? And, and now how do we, how do we respond? How do we get out of it? Do we, uh, do we take the isolationist route or do we take a, you know, recovering our, our position uh, route, which, which path should the United States take? And bringing that back, I guess, to to the individual uh, level and what that matters for for U.S. citizens, right, and for for the everyday American, right. You know, we have the economic issue. Right. Uh, you know, we've you know we've we've got that situation. It is what it is. Right. Right. But how does that affect you know? How does that affect you individually? How does that affect right? Um, us as a nation and and does that also then go back in the other direction to affect you individually and right. and yes it does right? it absolutely does mm-hmm. you know from from people living in very small towns population of 1000 to people living in New York City or Los Angeles or Houston Washington DC across the board in the United States right the chinese theft of research development agricultural information, intellectual property from corporations that work in software engineering, new tech startups, anything and everything that can benefit China, China's stealing. When China steals that information and goes back to China and spins up a global competitor that's able to produce that paint with those special pigments and that chemical composition, right, and sell that on the world market at a lower price, that means... You, Jimmy, working at the paint factory, are going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. And then your family's going to be affected by that. That means you, Tom, that's working in oil and gas, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it causes for the everyday American a, a major shock economically in, in our system. And, and we've been seeing the, the ongoing effects of this since the 1970s when right. we opened up to trade with mainland China. Right. Absolutely. That's when it started. That's uh, when, you know, it's hindsight's always twenty twenty. right? Looking back, you know, this is, uh, China's been growing for so long and has garnered, gained so much strength um, to where now they're in, a, they're in a position where it's not stoppable. It's uh, without significant, significant intervention and then it comes down to the will of the american people right if you don't want to lose your job if you don't want to lose american businesses to foreign competition from these chinese you know faux businesses that are started with stolen data from your company right if you click on that email link and you are an engineer at northrop grumman shame on you because Ultimately, it's going to economic collapse, right? Jobs and industry are going to be lost because of China's aggressive and persistent theft of intellectual property. You know, and it, it is what it is. Right. And, 
And so this is right. This is why we care about about Absolutely. China's rise, right? One, China is in direct competition with us, right? So they're going to support all of our adversaries. They're right. going to support Russia. They're going to support Iran. They're going to support North Korea. They're going to support Venezuela and and Cuba and on and on and on, right? Adversaries that are are bent on you know harming the United States one way or another with uh, with our national security. Right, they're going to help fund uh, terrorist organizations. They're going to help do all of these kinds of things behind the scenes because strategically that makes sense for for them to take us down. Right. So there's the there's the hard security side of it, and then there's the economic side right. of right. This is costing you your job, or this is going to cause prices to go in twenty different directions, none of them good. Right. And and you you end up with economic you know conditions that uh, are disadvantageous right. to you. Right, it's totally destabilizing the the way you live your life now here at home in the United States. If we don't demand more from our government and from you know this is why elections matter. This is why everything matters to you in your small town working at. The steel factory. We have to have wise decision makers on on these on these kinds of issues, right? Because China will steal, they will destroy, and they can't be competed with in terms of labor and production. Mm -hmm. So that's why it matters to every American, and every American should think about China, think about Russia every day, right? Politics keep the keep domestic politics out of it, right? That does play a part, but these countries are a threat to our way of life here at home. So, how do we better protect ourselves as individual citizens, as groups of citizens, counties, states, or you know, regions, countries from the Chinese threat? Right. Stay united against that, against that threat. And, and this is one area where, where really there should be a lot of, uh, a lot of ability to cooperate in, in bipartisan issues. Unfortunately, that hasn't always been the case. Um, and certain, certain times you have different parties and different people who have affinities one way or another, right. but this is an area that we should be able to stand together and say, okay, you know, this matters to us to protect our our country, our people, our citizens, uh, militarily, economically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And and so this is again something that we have to really take into consideration. What future do we want to leave right. for for you know our our children, our grandchildren, and and so on? And and do we want to? have a world dominated by a China, Russia, Iran bloc, or do we want to have a, a world wherein the United States remains the, the key power and, and influence um, agent in, in the world? Any final thoughts before we, before we close? I don't have any final thoughts other than Chinese intelligence is a significant threat. Every American should be aware of the Chinese intelligence threat at home. And I hope that our decision makers in Washington, D.C. 
will do a better job at protecting us from these threats. Right. Thank you. Uh, This has been episode two of International Affairs, and stay tuned next week as we invite uh, one of our former professors and a former uh, chief of counterintelligence from CIA, uh, Mr. Jim Olson, uh, to, to join us in our discussion. We'll get to hear his story and pick his brain about some of these timely issues.